Hello, and welcome to episode three of PETA Unplugged. I'm Tabitha Badger. Lake PETA, in the heart of the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, is a significant thread in Tasmania's social fabric. But the original, iconic Lake PETA is inferred 15 metres below the enormous hydro storage lake that you see on maps today titled Lake PETA. It's fascinating how the controversy of PETA's flooding has maintained momentum for nearly half a century. And equally powerful is the unshakable belief that the original Lake Pedda will be restored. This podcast shares the stories of the original Pedda people, their adventures and their mishaps. Today's Pedda story is told by Lindsay Hope. Lindsay is a member of the 1970s Launceston Walking Club's Save Lake Pedda National Park Committee. And today he plays an active role in the Restore Pedda campaign. He's up in tropical Queensland with his dear wife, Sue. So this episode is another Zoom recording. Lindsay's infectious love for Tassie and its wild beauty is something he can not only articulate well, but captures gorgeously behind the lens of a camera too. If you enjoy a good yarn about tramping and photography in Tasmania, then this is an episode for you. So please sit back and enjoy episode three of PETA Unplugged with Lindsay Hope. did a boy from the Blue Mountains end up in Tasmania and fighting to save Lake Pedder? Yes, well, I was born in Sydney and grew up on the Blue Mountains during the 1950s and 1960s. And I don't know if you know, but the Blue Mountains is basically a very high uplifted sandstone plateau and it's heavily dissected. So basically it's bushland, steep ridges and gullies. So you can't have a normal subdivision for housing there. The, the roads just run along the tops of the ridges and there's just one row of houses either side of the roads. So we lived at a little town called Falcon Bridge and when I left, when I'd leave my backyard to go for a walk, I was straight away in the um, what is now the Blue Mountains National Park World Heritage Area. How good was that? We had all this beautiful bushland and we could walk down into the down the steep sandstone ridges and past sandstone caves into the beautiful creeks, crystal clear waters, and you could catch lobsters in the creeks. And so I used to enjoy lots of walks down through the bush with my dog. But more than that, I was very active in the Boy Scouts and we'd go for long expeditions. And so we had some wonderful expeditions in the bush with maps and compasses. But you could, uh, because of the bushland, you could never really see far ahead and where you were going. So it was very due to navigation. Now, my dad was a um, was a senior scout leader at the time, Springwood Troop. And so I eventually went through to the senior scouts. And dad did an amazing thing when I look back on it. He led a group of well, his troop, of which I was a part. He led us on a trip to Tasmania all the way from the Blue Mountains with a group of about 14 or 15 young, which is a pretty big thing to do, specifically to take us and lead us on the overland track walk, the Crater Mountain Lakes and Clare Reserve, as it was called in those days. I could not believe my eyes when we arrived at the Crater Mountain Reserve to, to see this beautiful mountain country and quite different to the Blue Mountains because after you, you could leave the tree line in Tasmania and walk in the, up onto the rocky peaks, dolerite, and you could actually see where you're going, you know, quite clearly. It gets quite often see long, long ways in front of you to plan your routes in just magnificent country. That was something I'd never forget as a great thing that he did for me to introduce Tasmania because we also visited Hobart and then up the East Coast 
and I just love the place. So in my diary I wrote, which I still have, I spoke about the beauty of Tasmania and how one day I will return, possibly to live. And, and as, it turned, as it turned out, the course of the expeditions I did on the mountain, so I, I became interested in finding work that was indoors and outdoors. And I was reasonably good at mathematics and so surveying, land surveying seemed to attract me because I thought, oh yeah, that's all about exploration. And so after leaving high school, I was at Katoomba High School and after leaving there, I gained some work as a surveying assistant, a young naive surveying assistant in Sydney. I was working all day, but doing, I was set out to do a university course part-time, which was an engineering course with branching out into surveying later on. The problem was that I was working all day, coming coming from the mountains on the train to Sydney, working all day, uh, hopping on a double-decker bus and going out to the University of New South Wales, buying a meat pie or two, going to lectures and quite often falling asleep. After two years of part-time, and I was having trouble with a few subjects that had nothing to do with surveying and uh, particularly chemistry, and I thought, well, this is not really going to be successful. So I did some research into what would be an alternative for gaining um, surveying qualifications. And lo and behold, I discovered that you could do this in Tasmania by gaining a cadetship with a licensed surveyor, study through RMIT in Melbourne correspondence, and later on at the University of Tasmania. So this is what I did. On 24th of May, 1966, I flew into Launceston and uh, just happened to be Empire Night in those days, Cracker Night. I remember getting off the plane in the late afternoon and thinking, oh, crikey, never felt so cold in all my life. And of course, during that night, it got very smoky in Launceston and I was I checked into the YMCA and there I was with all my worldly possessions in two suitcases, no job, no place to stay. Well, I had written a few letters to surveyors in Tasmania beforehand to see if there's any possibilities of work, but nothing was really offering. But within a week, I'd found a boarding house where there were lots of young people who'd come in from outside Launceston for work purposes. And I'd also secured a job with a surveyor just down the road from the boarding house and gained a four-year cadetship. So that was great. And then one of the young people in the boarding house was this very nice young school teacher lady named Sue, who later on I married. But of course, prior to all that, we joined the Launceston Walking Club together because of our joint interest in bushwalking and mountain climbing. Sue had lived in Hobart and done some walks with the Lancers, with the Hobart Club, and also lived near Mount Wellington, of course, that wonderful mountain. So we joined the club together, and there we found all these young, fit, passionate bushwalking people who were, many of them, keen conservationists. And we enjoyed wonderful walks out into the um, Tasmanian countryside, mountain climbs. I just couldn't believe how magnificent the place was. Just loved it. And the camaraderie was wonderful. As well as the bushwalks, of course, the Launceston Walking Club was well known for its annual slide and film show. They screened in the Princess Theatre on two particular nights. And they there was great interest in these shows because we were going out into wilderness areas that a lot of the average people living in Launceston or farther afield, you know, had not been to. So we were showing them new places under the theme of Do You Know Tasmania? This kindled my love for photography 
And um, so I purchased a new camera, beautiful, good new camera, and um, just enjoyed all the expeditions, capturing the photography and then sharing it with others. Actually, I think Sue purchased it for me because she had, had more money than me at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I was training to be a surveyor, so I was a school teacher. Uh, so it was a Canon. Since then, over the years, I've had quite a few Canons, and I still have one of the latest Canons. So. As part of the One System Walking Club, when we first arrived there, these young, enthusiastic people were, this is 1966, 67, were talking about this beautiful lake in southwest Tasmania, and because I knew nothing about it. That or much of Tasmania, really. It was like this lake was called Lake Pedder. People who were interested in the Launceston Walking Club joined with members of the Northwest Walking Club, led by Peter Sims, formed the Save Lake Pedder National Park Committee. Peter led the campaign to try and save Lake Pedder National Park as such for five years and threw his whole life into it. And later on in 2012, much later, he produced a book with great detail, all the campaign called Lake Pedder, The Awakening. Through this committee, <clears throat> which was highly active, Peter was amazing. And one of the things that happened was that on the 22nd of June, 1967, members of the Save Lake Pedder National Park Committee, there were three of them, I wasn't, I wasn't included in that, they presented a slideshow to the Tasmanian parliamentary members and their wives at Parliament House. It showed the beauty of Lake Pedder at its best with accompanying script. And the final message was, all we ask is that all national parks once proclaimed should remain unimpaired for all time. And any violation of one is a threat to all national parks, scenic reserves and monuments. And that statement still rings so true today. I just get goosebumps yeah. Yeah. thinking about it and how so many of our national parks are still under threat, even yeah. though we assume that they're protected in perpetuity. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so then we get to going into Lake Pedder. My first walk, I'd never seen it before. The interesting thing was that the Launceston Morton Club owned a club bus. They had various old buses from over the years and various members who were capable would be taken in turns to drive the bus on the trips. Quite large old buses. The one trip that I remember well was uh, typical, I suppose. We'd leave Launceston at 5pm on the bus and we'd drive all the way down to the southwest. That would probably take quite a few hours, probably four or five hours. And the Gordon Road had just been constructed. And from the Gordon Road, there was a nine-kilometre walking track into the lake. So we would park the bus uh, close by to where the track commenced off the Gordon River Road, commence walking. And it's probably that was probably 10 o'clock at night. And I remember that one walk must have been planned to coincide with a full moon because I remember the long walk up over the saddle beside the Sentinel Range and then across the swampy plains. They're very swampy, but the walk was made easy by the moon because we're able to see some of the bog holes, the many bog holes that you might be familiar with on bushwalks. Yeah, there's a distinctive slimy bog hole that appears only in the southwest of Tasmania, isn't there? That's right. I remember when we did a walk in Cradle Mountain once with our with our children, <clears throat> they were complaining about them. So we've got them these sticks, Miss Ender. Then these are bog hole sticks, and that really they were really impressed with that and made walking easier for them. But yeah, Lake Pedder, 
we would camp once we once we reached there that night, for example, the tents, and uh, you wouldn't be able to see much of the lake, of course, but you'd wake up in the morning and there's this unbelievably beautiful scene in front of you with just a scene of quiet beauty, you know, with its magnificent pinkish-white quartzite beach fringed by the mountain ranges. It's very difficult to describe the tranquility and spiritual refreshment that we experience, you know, by walking in the Pedra on a fine day and just spending just spending time in that unique environment. So much of the Lake Pedra campaign seems to rest on the visual images that a latest Johannes slideshow immediately comes to mind in terms of that photographic appeal and the beauty of the Southwest and something that, as you say, is so unseen by a vast majority of the community. When yeah. you got to Lake Pedder, was there anything in those images that could have prepared you for that? I'm not sure that there was because I'm not sure that I'd actually viewed it at that yeah. stage. I can remember I can remember driving with my surveyor boss out from Launceston out to Deloraine or somewhere to work. And he'd he'd tell me and he was a he wasn't an environmentalist at all. And he would say, Oh, I saw the Alagas Bacamas show last night. And he was just telling me how wonderful it was. But I'm not sure I ever thought of his slides before I went in there. But I don't think they could have prepared me because of the great value is actually in being there, of course. And it's just an experience. It's how you feel, isn't it? Just awe inspired, really. And of course, we, we were probably very lucky to have our walks mainly in fine weather. There's no doubt that there's many times where it's wild and windy and wet and cold, but I suppose that's also part of the mystique of the place and the beauty. What was the community sentiment around Lake Petter at that time? Was there tangible tension in the air among people? Oh yes, yeah, I think I think there was, and uh, but there was there was still great work being done to try and get the message out. What a beautiful place it was, and to educate people. We, as part of the committee, were doing other things. For example, um, one particular weekend, it may have been a long weekend, uh, we all went down and set up a camp on the Gordon River Road, and there we set out, uh, handed out brochures and provided refreshments for the tourists who were all, you know, streaming down there to look at this wonderful new road in the southwest. And the road itself, in those days, it had just been cut, so it was. It was probably a geological masterpiece with all these beautiful cuttings and all the different coloured stones. That was the sandstone and, and all the other geology. And I was quite surprised when I visited there in 2020 and, oh, where's all the sandstone cuttings? But, of course, it's all well overgrown. So there we were on the Gordon River Road trying to educate and inspire the people touring down there that this lake needed to be saved. I remember camping on a, on a hard gravel ground just to the side of the road somewhere. And Sue had brought this new NASA space blanket with her that she was going to put on the ground. That was going to really keep us warm. But unfortunately, <laughs> that was unsuccessful. That was part of the work that was done. But yeah, there was a great feeling of still needing to educate people. But when the PETA 2000 campaign started, were you and Sue a part of that from Queensland? No, I had no idea at all. It wasn't until becoming associated with things again now that we've learned a lot more about what happened before. It was when I went to the um, launch of Door PETA 
at the State Theatre in 2019. I thought, oh, so wonderful, this is all wonderful, something new. But I didn't realise the restored theatre had been around for many years. But it's wonderful and quite inspiring to be led by Christine and and her motto of never give up. I think that's that's what's driving us, isn't it? It's really interesting, the premise of not giving up on Lake Petter. So many people, there's a deniable belief that it will be restored. We know that it's practically possible, but Mm. there's never been a feeling that it's been gone forever. Everyone speaks of how one day it will re-emerge and you're definitely one of those people who can articulate it so well. What do you feel when you see the current impoundment? I feel quite cold, really. (laughs) (laughs) cold in body and mind about the whole thing. It's just it's environmentally dead to me, I suppose. But admittedly, I haven't been up to Mount Anne and looked at it from there. I've seen a few photos and think, oh, it doesn't look too bad, does it? <laughs> it's, <Yeah. laughs> so it's, um, it's very difficult. I suppose, I suppose the people who uh, disagree with us are saying that we're living in the past and we're old people in this type of thing but it's just the it's just the thoughts of, of what we'd experienced and, and what was there you know it was an icon wasn't it it was an icon comparable in significance with Uluru and the Great Barrier Reef so 50 years later yeah I'm, I'm still motivated by the belief that a terrible mistake was made by leaders 50 years ago I still think it's a wrong that must be righted I just couldn't believe that the politicians then could be so blind to the natural beauty and the significance of the icon that was like better, and that 240 square kilometres of biodiversity could be lost to flooding. You mentioned the argument that the people who want to restore Lake Petter are just a bunch of old people having a little nostalgia trip. Yeah. When there's people like myself and a whole younger cohort of people who are fighting for its restoration who weren't old enough to have ever visited the yeah. lake yet are still almost mourning this place that they've never visited. It's yeah. quite isn't, astonishing, really. Isn't it wonderful, though? Isn't it wonderful that there, there, there are people like you and other, lots of young people? I, th- I think that's just so inspiring and, and encouraging because that's what's needed, isn't it? And as you say, there's 242 square kilometres of biodiversity that was destroyed. But it can be restored and in this time of a climate crisis and and biodiversity crisis, you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, this is right. And uh, yeah, I have confidence that time will tell. That's what I believe, that time will tell. There's a 10 years UN decade of ecological or ecosystem restoration. You know, in this in this current world of ageing dams and new technology and renewable energy, I think the draining and the restoration can be successfully achieved, you know, economically, biologically and environmentally, if there is the political will to do so. Now, that's the big crunch, the political will, and that's it can be done, I think in conjunction with good balanced planning of the economic futures of Tasmania's energy and tourism industries. And um, this will take a little back step, but Fred Smith was a member of the Launceston Walking Club and head of the Scenic Preservation Board. Yeah. He was a big advocate for the road into Cradle Mountain. He purchased wall time when Gustav Weindorfer tragically passed away. And he said at the time that this was in the 1970s, that constructing that road into Cradle Mountain had contributed to its over-tourism and pollution. 
visitors leaving litter in what was otherwise an unspoiled natural location. But he supported the flooding of Lake Pedder on the premise that the enlarged impoundment would be more accessible to a greater diversity of people who otherwise couldn't have walked into the lake or couldn't afford to fly in. Was there any tension around that? Yeah. Did he he say that? Well, no idea. No idea. (laughs) The only time I ever met Fred Smithies was, um, again, I was in the car going out surveying with my boss. And uh, he said, he said, I've just got to pick up a gentleman on the way. And lo and behold, it was Fred Smithies. And he introduced introduced me and... uh, Said I was in the Lotus and Walton Club, and so we had a bit of a chat, but that was it. I must admit, at the time, with with all the Save Lake Pedder National Park Committee, um, committee, I was also working very, very, very hard to try and become a licensed surveyor. So there were various things that bypassed me, I suppose, in that, in that regard. What a cool job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it suited me, <laughs> the, the old Blue Mountains explorer that I thought I was. <laughs> but the the interesting thing was that throughout my life, I've the way it, the way it worked out, it was nothing like I imagined. And and in the end, I used to have great trouble because I felt in great conflict with what was happening. My work, I should have looked at it differently to say, "Oh, look, I'm providing homes for people. People must have homes." But the trouble I had coming here, for example, was that it was a beautiful, beautiful, undeveloped sort of area, but strongly attractive for tourists and people to live. And gradually over the 30 years, 40 years, we've just created housing estate after housing estate, marching over the hills and knocking down all the trees. And I suppose been in a bit of strife for being a so-called green surveyor because developers don't particularly like someone who might be slightly green. It's all a rich tapestry of life, and I'd probably, if I had it in my time again, I probably wouldn't change it. But I sometimes do reflect on why the young Lindsay found it necessary to leave Tasmania. It was straight after Lake Pedder, of course, and, and it was also very cold down there. And we've, it's, interesting to look, it's interesting to look back on those things now. And what do you think? the most profound impact that Lake Peter has had on you is? Well, obviously, obviously it's great beauty and a wonderful feeling of freedom that you'd obtain when you were there. And this is what I used to feel on the Blue Mountains when I said that I'd go out and leave my backyard and I'd be in the World Heritage Area, or what is now a World Heritage Area, because of the great freedom and the inspiration of the natural environment. So... Lake Pedder was an extension of that, just completely inspiring me about the beauty of the natural environment, somewhere as beautiful as that. And the actual getting out of those areas and the walking was to give you this feeling of great freedom and it was just so good for your health and your mental health. That's what I used to find. And that was something about Lake Pedder because of the experiences there and the beauty of the place and the tranquility. Uh, it just made you feel very positive about the world and the future. And yeah, and I think that's something about bushwalking. I think it's one of the greatest activities you can do for your mental health. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people in lockdown around the country that couldn't agree more with that statement at the moment. Yes, and at the moment, the way it works, it's just what you need to do is just get out of your house and walk down the street for your yeah. mental health. <laughs> The local park or anywhere that you can find a little bit of nature. Yeah, the thing, there's one thing that 
stirs me as I get older and realise with a few health problems that I'm not going to see Lake Petter again. But that's fair enough. Um, should have worked that out before. But maybe my children will or my grandchildren. After digitally scanning my old slide photography, we can now, 50 years later, use the photos to help promote the restoration of the lake. Our, our final visit to camp and explore and photograph at Lake Petter was on the long weekend in March, 1972. Sue and I flew in from Hobart with our two-year-old daughter, Georgie, and Sue's dad, Ray. And this was actually the last time that aircraft could land on the beach with visitors before the backing up serpentine dam water permanently covered the lake and the beach. And, and interestingly, Sue's dad, he was the manager of Hume's Pipes at the Times in Hobart. And yeah. one, of, one of the biggest clients was, of course, the hydro. So he was involved with a lot of the hydro schemes. After his visit, you could see and we could understand from him that he was quite affected by it and he could, he could understand that what mistake was being made, you know, you know. But, of course, it was all a bit late, but it was quite an interesting experience to have Sue's dad with us. Yeah, not a traditional conservationist by any means. No, no, no. But that's the effect the lake had, had on people if they actually went there. So during that visit, we quietly enjoyed and absorbed and photographed on slides, you know, that beautiful, tranquil, spiritual place. It was really a spiritual place. And so we lamented its impending inundation. And since then, it's been my lifelong wish that the original Lake Peter would one day be restored. And that was episode three of Petter Unplugged with Lindsay Hope. If you'd like to learn more about anything to do with Petter, head to lakepetter.org. Or if you've got a story or know someone who might want to share theirs with us, send us an email at restoration at I'm Tabitha Badger, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.